good to be with you guys. I, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of being on pastoral staff here. It's fun to, to be with you this morning. Uh, if you are a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, uh, Miss Belinda is over there, and feel free to join her and our kids team. It's going to be awesome. If you're an adult and you're with me, uh, this morning we're sort of at this really important transitional moment in the Old Testament, right? For Since January, we started in Genesis and we're sort of worked our way through. We just finished uh, getting through the Torah, right? So the first five books of the Bible, now we're starting post-Torah, uh, which means we have a new leader entering the scene, uh, Joshua. And God's people are going to go from the desert wanderings into the promised land. It's a big, big transition in the biblical narrative and for the people experiencing it. Now, this is how it begins. This is Joshua 1.1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. I'm going to stop there. Now, this might feel just kind of like a random transitional line. You're like, that's an odd place to stop. But a few details that are important to raise. One The author is trying to tell us that this is the same Joshua who worked closely with Moses since he was a little boy. Numbers 11.28 says that Joshua worked by Moses' side since he was a boy. Two, this is the same Joshua who walked up Mount Sinai with Moses, right? Moses wasn't alone. He went up with Joshua, Exodus 24. He's the same Joshua who assisted Moses when the people were wandering through the desert, wondering where to go, frequently disobedient, and Joshua was with Moses. And the fact that now Moses is dead, right, and God is talking directly to Joshua, signals at the beginning of this book that Joshua is kind of assuming this Moses-like role as the story shifts. This is what God says to Joshua as he starts talking to him at the beginning of the book entitled Joshua. This is verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, towards the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we're at this key transitional moment for the people of Israel. And God speaks both commands and makes some promises, right? He tells them, cross the river, enter this land, right? But we have to remember, right, this is the same land that God promised to Abraham a long time ago, and he's fulfilling that promise. But the generation before, they balked on this very threshold and were like, I don't know. I don't know if we can go in there. He tells them to enter this land. And he says, I will be with you. He says that no one will be able to stand before them. Why? Because he is with them. 
And he won't ever forsake them. But we need to be honest for a second, right? Because these are basically the same things he said to the previous generation. And the, literally, the previous generation was almost at this exact same spot with the exact same promises. And they were like, I don't know, those cities look really fortified. The people living there are really tall. We feel like grasshoppers under the feet of giants. No thanks, God. We're going to turn away. We'll just go back to Egypt. We'll figure out something. So it kind of makes sense that as God continues to speak to Joshua, he's kind of anticipating this. He's like, these people might panic. They, when things get hard, they might think, I don't know. Did God really call me to enter this land? So this is what he says to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do, to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's a lot to unpack here. First, I just want to say this. God clearly is calling Joshua and the people of Israel to be strong and courageous. Right? He says it three times. Verse 6, 7, and 9. In the midst of all the transition... Right? Transition of leadership, transition of place. God calls them to be courageous. The thing is, right, it's easy for us to read Bible passages like this and be like, if I was there, I'd totally be strong and courageous. <laughs> like, what is their issue? Like, get over yourself. Just do it. But I can say, right, at the beginning of this pandemic, everything sort of blew up, right? Can we meet in person? Do I need to wear a mask? How do we get things online? And I have to say, it required actually a lot of courage to just move forward. I had so many doubts. I had so many wonderings. So now when I read this passage this week, I'm like, oh yeah, no, no, no. It does take courage whenever you're in a transition to face what is coming ahead of you. Has anyone ever been in a transition? How did it feel? Not what did you decide. How did it feel to be in that place? It's scary. It's hard to know which way is forward. It's hard to choose trust. And I think this is exactly what God is asking Joshua and his people to do. To face their fears. To move forward. To trust in spite of very real risks and significant unknowns. Right? And this is a call to be courageous, not because they're amazing warriors or strategic savants, but because God is with them. Because God is with them, right? His presence is the source of their courage. The second point is, while they're called to be courageous, I think this is really fascinating. 
He also calls them to be grounded in his teaching. Did you notice that? Right? So he says in verse 8, right, be meditate on the law. Law is the word Torah, which means teaching. Meditate on my teachings. Right? For the first time since God's people have been rescued from Egypt, this is the first time they're going to be among other cultures and other gods. This is the first time where they're really going to be tempted. There's going to be so many more ways of worshiping and living, and they're going to see all these options. And the question is, will they be grounded in the teaching of the kingdom? I remember uh, in the early 2000s, I'm going to date myself, as I was coming out of college, uh, some of you are like, oh, you're young, and others of you are like, dude is old, you know, <laughs> depending on where you're at, I'm right in the middle. Um, I remember there was this push. A lot of my peers were like, all right, we need to like not retreat, let's engage. So people started doing all kinds of ministry at like bars and like atheist clubs, and it was like this, yeah! you know, and there was something awesome about it because there was this way in which we're not going to retreat from the world. But I'll also tell you this. I know so many friends that lost their faith in that season because they thought they were going to influence their secular friends and they end up having their faith corroded by a secular world. And as I looked out, what I saw as the common variable all the people that lost their faith in that season were not people that were grounded in the scriptures and the teachings of God. They had no fear, but they also were not grounded in the teachings that would have founded them during that season. They were passionate about the mission of God without being grounded in the teachings of God. And here we are in verse 8, and God tells his people as they're at this transitional moment about to be in this other cultures, immersed and seeing all these other ways of worshiping, he says this, right? The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. The teachings, right? Law, Torah. The book of the teachings, the Torah, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And if you're a student of the scriptures, you might notice this sounds really familiar to how the Psalter or the book of Psalms begins. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, Torah, teaching, he meditates day and night. And what happens? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Right? God calls Joshua and the people of Israel to be courageous. But this isn't like reckless, chaotic impulsivity. It's rather a fearlessness that is grounded in the teachings of God and the presence of God. Also, it's important to just say that this word meditate is not generally what we associate with like more Eastern traditions, which is more like self-emptying. Uh, in Hebrew, to meditate is haggah. Uh, Tim Mackey of Bible Project says that the word is used to describe a carnivore, getting like a piece of meat, like a bone, 
and getting sort of ripping every little piece off of it, sucking out the marrow. Right? In Jewish thought, to meditate day and night is to fill one's mind, heart, and body with the word and the teaching of God. All right, big transition moment, people of Israel, from Moses to Joshua, from the desert to the promised land, God's people are sent out, told to be courageous. Joshua tells the people, the people are like, awesome, let's do it. So what do they do? They send out spies. If you're a student of the scriptures, we went over this a few weeks, Numbers 13 and 14, what's the first thing they do when they get to this threshold? Send out spies to explore the whole land, right? This is meant to feel a little repetitive. This is their second chance. Last time, though, they sent the spies out. The spies come back. They give what the text says is an evil report. What happens? It undermines the faith of the community. They retreat into the desert. We wait a whole other generation for this moment. As chapter 2 unfolds, spies are sent out to look specifically at one town, Jericho. And what's fascinating as chapter 2 unfolds is it offers a picture of what it looks like to embody this courage, as one who faithfully is responding to the invitation of God to be his presence in the world. And of all places, it begins in a tavern or a hostel of a prostitute. This is how the story begins, Joshua 2.1. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, practically, I think this makes sense. Right? The spies are trying to get information. What better place to go than a place where people are, you know, there's a bar, people are drinking too much. They think they can be super suave and slick and maybe get a little more information from these inebriated people that are falling all over the place. Whatever. They take the risk, though. They go to Jericho. They're soaked in God's teaching. But almost immediately, right, they show up and the king of Jericho knows they're there. It's like, yeah, you guys were really slick. King of Jericho says this, verse 2, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land, right? Within like 10 minutes, people are onto them. They're caught. And this question is, so what about God's protection? Within minutes, they're already caught. Verse 3, the king sends for Rahab. Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house. Now, obviously, the tavern over, Rahab is going to hand them over. There's literally no other option. Like, why would she do anything else? She's a Canaanite. She lives in Jericho. She does not know these people. She does not owe these people Likely, if she hands them over, she's going to curry favor with the king. Man, she could milk that for a long time, make her business better, elevate her reputation. As a woman and a prostitute, she would have been a low social standing. Maybe she elevates her reputation. But instead, verses 4 through 7, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. What? And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had put them up on the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid out 
in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard the story of Rahab, and you're thinking, duh, of course that's what she did. But you need to stop for a second and put yourself in the position of the spies. The spies have no reason to assume that Rahab is going to not betray them, hide them. Like, what? Why would she do that? All she has to do is let this, the king's messenger show up, search her house, and she's done. But instead, she hides them. More than that, they show up. And then what does she do? She lies to them. Not only does she lie to them, but now the king's messengers have to believe her. If you slow down into this story a little bit, imagine it. She gets a word from the king, right? She hides them. The messengers are on their way. They show up at her door. They're hiding upstairs, and they're like, where are they? She says, they went out the gate. Now the king's messengers have a choice. It's probably time important to go search after them. But do they believe a prostitute and a woman? Do they trust her? Or are they like, get out of my way. We're searching this place anyway. The king would be so mad at us if we mess this up. She takes this massive risk. If they search her place, she dies that day. She doesn't lose her job. She doesn't lose social standing. She's executed. But they believe her. They go outside. They look for the spies all over the place. The question is, why? Why would anyone betray their people, betray their city, and not even that, put themselves at such incredible risk? Why would you do that? What would motivate you to take that kind of risk? Can you think of any time in your life when you've taken a risk like that? Well, good thing in the scriptures, Rahab's explanation is one of the longest uninterrupted statements by a female character in the biblical narrative. That's what it says, verses 9 through 13. I know that the Lord has given you the land. What? I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen us, on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. This woman is not an Israelite. The promise was not made to her. And yet, she believes that God has given Israel this land. Right? In Numbers 13 and 14, the people of Israel were made these exact same promises. They were told by God, I give you this land. And yet, 
they did not believe. And here, the people of God begin to enter a land, and the most profound example of faith-filled courage is Rahab, a non-Israelite, a woman, and a prostitute. It isn't Joshua. It's not Moses. It's not Abraham. It's Rahab, who remembers God was the one who parted the Red Sea. It's Rahab who sees God's act in Egypt for what they are. She sees God's power and might. And as a result, she renounces her allegiance to her people and her city at Jericho. And she asks to be accepted among God's people. Right? She knows God has given the promised land to Israel. And rather than oppose God, she hides spies, lies on their behalf, and seeks sanctuary among them. She knows in the deepest part of her being that the God of Israel controls the destiny of the world. And she knows that defying an earthly king is nothing compared to being on the wrong side of God. And what will the spies do? Right, because she's taking all these risks. Will they believe her? Right, she's risked their, her life on their behalf, but do they trust her? They're really overexposed. The gates are trapped. They're shut up in a city that they don't know anything about. Clearly, they're not that clever because they're caught within like 10 minutes of arrival. Right, we're not dealing with Mission Impossible, some like 007 here. Like these people are struggling. But they've been sent into the promised land to spy. They've been told to be courageous. And here is their first real opportunity. What do they do? Do they trust this woman? This is what they say. Our life for yours even to the death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Right? They decide to trust Rahab in the midst of this moment, and good thing they do, because her words prove trustworthy, right? She gets them over the wall. She tells them to wait for three days before rushing back, and because they do this, they are able to make it back safely. Because of Rahab, they make it back to Joshua and the people of God. And then based on Rahab's insider information, right, they decide to enter the promised land. Which is pretty crazy, because if you think about it, them entering the promised land is actually a fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to give you land. You're going to love it. And through you, I'm going to bless all of the nations. Now, they're entering the land. And the first thing that happens when they enter this land is that the nations are blessed. Rahab. And what's even crazier, it's through this Canaanite woman that is incredibly courageous, incredibly faithful, that ends up being connected and integral to the lineage of Jesus. Matthew 1, the author traces the bloodline of Jesus from Abraham all the way
way to the first century and Jesus' birth. Verses 5 and 6. This is the middle of the genealogy. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And if you keep going down, you get to Jesus. So not only does Rahab's inclusion signal a blessing to the nations, but that blessing has implications, which lead to God's son taking on flesh to bless and save the world. So all these moving pieces at the beginning of Joshua. Now my question to us is, so how does this affect us? So what? Cool story, long time ago. How does that relate to a New Testament people trying to figure out what does it mean to be faithful on the peninsula in the 21st century? First, I just want to say this. As I thought and prayed about it, what's clear both then and now is that God sends his people on his mission. In Joshua 1 and 2, right, God has a mission for his people. Go into the land I promised you. Right? He sends them. He promises to be with them as they follow his lead. And the same is true if we fast forward to the New Testament. Right? Jesus equips his disciples. And then after his death, what did he do? Right? He sends them out as his people to be on his mission in the world to be his faithful presence, Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I love this context for the sending. Right? Jesus has equipped these disciples, now he's sending them out to be on his mission in the world. And it says, some of them doubted. Not everyone is up there super excited singing worship songs. Some people are like, what? have we gotten ourselves into? What are we being asked to do? I'm not sure I signed up for this. And it's to these anxious, afraid, doubting worshipers that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? Just as God sends the Israelites into the promised land, so he sends us into the world. We are called to be his faithful presence wherever we go. Karl Barth, who's a theologian, had this commentary to Romans, and he said that we are living billboards of God wherever we go. This is what we are called to do and be. We are a sent people. Not on our mission that we want to scaffold and create, but on God's. And the truth is, this still requires courage. God sends his people on his mission, and it still requires our courage. I have to meet with people, and maybe you relate to this, who are kind of nervous about being a living billboard, the faithful presence, a witness for Jesus. Sometimes I feel like we are as nervous as the Israelites were to enter the promised land. So rather than being witnesses, we often withdraw. 
rather than being honest about what we think and feel and believe with friends and where we are, we hide. And I think part of this is because we assume that we don't just need to be witnesses and carry our story and be ourselves as God has shaped us, but we also need to be experts. We feel like, man, if someone asks me a question, I need to be able to answer every single question and nail it, A+, I'm awesome. But I love that in Joshua 2, God was already at work in the life of Rahab. They never convinced her. Did you notice that? They didn't come in with their awesome apologetics. They were like ready to like teach everyone in Canaan, man, listen, this is why you should believe. No, God was already at work. God was already revealing his power and majesty to her before they even showed up at her tavern. More than that, they mess up at every stage. The king knows about them immediately. They need to be hidden. Literally, imagine how embarrassing that is. They're like covered in flax upstairs. They're supposed to be the ambassadors of this awesome king, and they're hiding upstairs under a bunch of like straw-like stuff. It's all in their hair, and it's pretty funny. And it's only because of Rahab, who God has already worked at before they arrive, that they survive at all. It isn't the spies who extend the mission of God. It's God at work in Rahab before the spies even arrive. It's not our strength or our expertise. It is all about us being willing to be courageous, to partner with the Spirit of God already at work in the world. Our work is have the courage to be who God made us, to be faithful to who we are, to be honest and align with what God is already doing in the world. Notice that God doesn't have the spies come up with an amazing, amazing arguments to convince people. Instead, he tells them to be courageous. And then what else? To meditate on his teachings day and night. When Jesus sends out the disciples, what does he tell them? Just teach people to, com to, to do what I told you already to do. He calls them to be a people who are shaped by the way of God, right? So the, the fuller saying is, God sends his people on his mission, and it still requires courage, as well as a deep grounding in the scriptures. And I find this connection really important, because sometimes I think we disconnect the mission of God from the teachings of God in the scriptures. Right, like my friends, after college, we underestimate the corrosive effects, I think, of secularism, of the culture we're in. And one of the ways that we become a people of courage is taking the time to sit in and marinate and med upon, meditate upon the stories of God's provision. His faithfulness, his love in the scriptures. So that we know the one in whom we trust as we are taking risks. 
so that we know as we're taking these risks that God will never leave or forsake us, that he will be with us throughout. We need to know that because when we take risks to be God's witnesses in the world, sometimes it will feel unsafe. Sometimes it will be uncomfortable. Sometimes we will enter into relational context and conversations where we are in over our head. We're covered in flaxseed, hidden by a spy on a roof, wondering what is going to happen to us. I think what Joshua 1 and 2 is trying to help us see is that the way we become an evergreen witness of the kingdom in all seasons and all contexts is being a person, a tree that is planted by the water. Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord. And on his law, his teaching, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. That yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Right? Jesus is calling us to be living billboards, a faithful presence, outposts of faith, green trees in a spiritual desert. I think sometimes we look at these books and we think it's all about passing a quiz. I just need to know the information in here so I don't look dumb around people who really know their stuff when I attend that Bible study or whatever. We read this book so that we can know God and trust him. We read this book to be reminded that God's presence is with us always. That Jesus sends us into the world, but he never leaves our side. We read the book so that we know what God's kingdom is like. And what it looks like for us to faithfully participate in it. So that we can be a people that are filled with trust and courage and take risks on his behalf as his witnesses in the world. His living billboards. So we can go where the spirit is already at work like he was at Ray, with Rahab. And just align and partner with what he's already doing. We don't carry the burden of the gospel into the world. We carry the joy of what God has done in us, and we share that with others. As I reflect on this passage and sort of this week, three questions came to mind that I just want to invite you to consider. The first is this. Are you meditating on God's teaching and the story of the scriptures most days? I'm not like a, you know, if you don't do it every day, you're terrible. I'm not like a, you have to spend this much time or you failed. But like, does this book shape your life? Are the stories in this book part of your life? Is this how you make decisions? National statistics suggest that two-thirds of the people in this room do not read their Bible most days. That's the national statistics from people that self-identify as believers. If you're not a believer, you're off the hook totally. Feel free not to read the Bible. But <laughs> I would encourage it if you want to get to know God. But I think often we underestimate the corrosive effects of secularism. And we forget 
that this is a lifeline to who God is and what is true in the world. So I just want to say to you, I just want to be super real, straight up, honest. Don't like say, I'm going to do something about this and then not do it when you leave this place. I'm serious. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to base some part of your life around this scripture. I don't care if you do it in the morning. I don't care if you do it on an audio Bible in the car. I don't care if your primary devotion as a parent is reading through a children's Bible with your kids at night. You've got to be in the text. Otherwise, I will tell you this. You are currently fighting a battle where this culture is trying to undermine your faith. And this is one of the few real lifelines you have to what is true. Thank you. I, yeah, some of you are clapping and some of you are like, I hate Tony right now. <laughs> Question two. Do you know where God is at work in the spheres of your influence? Again, this is not your heroic journey. God is at work in every sphere of influence of your life. In your workplace, in your extended family, on your block, at that favorite, co favorite coffee shop you go to, in your classes, God is already at work. Rahab is already there. The question is, are you ready? Are you taking the courage like those spies to get out there and be like, all right, God, here I am. What are you doing? When you look at your life, you think of those spheres of influence. Who do you see? Pay attention. You don't need to be the hero of this journey. God already is. Just partner with him. God, where are you at? He knows your strengths and your weaknesses. He knows what you're awesome at and what you really stink at. He knows the answers you're going to answer really well and the answers you're not. And sometimes he's going to put you in a position, allow him to do that. It's not about you, it is about the glory of God being manifest in the world. It's about people falling in love with Jesus. You want to be a part of that? Question three. Do you know where your courage is currently leaking? In my experience, there are places and people that expose parts of us and our courage. Like one moment, you're sitting in the pew on a Sunday morning, you're like, yeah, and then you get into that place or with that person and you just get tiny. Where is your courage leaking? With whom, in what context? And then what I want you to do is don't tell me Go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, work on my heart. Work on my character. Because what we see is that as we start to take these risks, as we start to lean into the mission of God, actually what happens is God works in us, in our heart, to transform us, to become a people who are courageous, to become a people that trust more. 
Three questions. Are you meditating on God's teaching? Most days. Do you know where God is at work in your spheres of influence? And three, where do you find your courage leaking? I want to invite the worship team up. Um, I think that's sort of the, the core of what God has for us in Joshua 1 and 2. Now, historically in the church, you know, at moments like these, what we do is we turn back to Jesus in worship. Right? This is why we sing songs on the second half of worship or the second half of the morning. So we can hear a teaching, God can convict and speak to us, and then we can return to his presence and say, all right, God, you know, help me to forget the things that are unimportant and help me to zero in on what is really true and real and necessary for me to hear. One of the ways the church has done that through history is by celebrating communion. Communion is a time where we can remember the faithfulness of God and look internally and reorient our hearts to him. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he met with some of his friends, the people he would send out into the world. And he said to them, grab some bread at the table gave thanks for it, and he said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Take it and eat it. And he took some wine that was at the table, and he said, right, this wine is my blood shed for you, so that your sins may be forgiven. He offered himself, his body and his blood, on the cross that next morning for those people that would betray him, for those doubting worshipers that would wonder about being sent into the world, for you and me. And one of the things we do at Wellspring to celebrate communion is if you're going to be serving, if you want to come up, the way we're going to do this is you guys are going to sort of slowly, as you feel led, come forward through this center aisle. We're going to be serving communion up here, and you'll sort of fan out and around. And the reason we do this is I think this is a moment where we get to choose to put Jesus at the center as individuals, but also as a community where we can all stand and say, we want this place to be centered on Jesus. And God created us embodied creatures, not just to sit in a pew, but to move by the very movement of our body, say, yes, Jesus, I choose you this morning. And there's going to be someone up here who's going to say to you, the body of Jesus broken for you, and you will have a choice. Do I receive the sacrifice of God? Do I let it wash over me? Do I take his life into my life and say in that moment, Jesus, you are the life of my life. You are the strength of my being. And you're going to have that person put this cup in front of you. You're going to hold this piece of bread and they're going to say the blood of Jesus shed for you. And you're going to have a choice of whether you want to dunk that in there and allow yourself to be covered in the blood and the life of Jesus.
that his sacrifice will just wash over you. If you're a follower of Jesus, I just invite you in this moment, whatever is holding you back from the kingdom, to lay it at the feet of Jesus before you come forward. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you're sort of wondering about this whole thing and you're like, I don't know if I want to go up there, I would say two things. Feel free to not participate. Totally fine. Don't feel pressured. Or you can come up and just say, hey, can you give me a blessing? Because this really is a choice. This isn't like, I'm going to go through the motions, church thing. This is choosing Jesus. It might be choosing him again for the 50th time, you know, this year. Or it might be choosing him for the first time. But communion is not just a practice we take lightly. It's a time when we orient our hearts as individuals in a community. Say, Jesus, we want this place to be about you. So I just invite you as you feel ready and as you feel led to come forward and receive communion as we receive worship.